When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Today on Inside Politics, temper tantrums. That's what Nikki Haley says we're seeing from Donald Trump. She's calling him a liar and slamming him for avoiding the CNN Iowa debate as her campaign tries to cast the GOP nomination as a two-person race with the former president. Plus, down by the border, Speaker Mike Johnson and dozens of House Republicans are taking their immigration fight directly to the spot where thousands of migrants have been arriving every day, and they're blaming President Biden for the surge. Now, they're also opening impeachment proceedings against his Homeland Security Secretary. And hitting the trail, President Biden will use the insurrection anniversary this weekend to kick off his 2024 campaign push, leaning in on his argument that the former president is a danger to democracy. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. First up, the 2024 race. You are looking at live pictures of Kingston, New Hampshire, where Nikki Haley is about to speak. Just 12 days to go before votes are cast in Iowa and GOP candidates are in early contest states pushing for every last vote they can find. CNN is all over the trail with those candidates. Eva McKend is following Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. Jeff Zeleny is with Ron DeSantis in Iowa. I want to start with Eva. Eva, Nikki Haley's campaign announced a pretty big fundraising haul. They did, Dana, her town hall, her first one of the day, just about to get underway here behind me. $24 million in the last quarter that in the latest quarter rather that's up from 11 million dollars in the last quarter so that really tells you that she continues to have some momentum in this contest that perhaps some of the folks that exited the race that some of those donors have moved over to her and this seems to be an illustration of that something that we notice on the campaign trail is she does seem to be confronting former president donald trump more directly more forcefully that's because a super PAC associated with Trump is hitting Haley on her position on the gas tax back from when she was governor of South Carolina. Well, she says she supports no such thing and is sounding off on this. Take a listen. I see the commercials that you see. And I've noticed that President Trump has given me some attention. And I appreciate that because that means he sees what we're seeing. But in his commercials and in his temper tantrums, every single thing that he said 
has been a lie. Every single one. I looked for some grain of truth. Every single one. So if he's going to lie about me, I'm going to tell you. So Haley has two more town halls after this one this afternoon. She'll be joined by Governor Sununu. Sununu telling New Hampshire voters last night that this is crunch time uh, and really imploring them to support her in the first in the nation primary. Listen, Chris Christie has a strong base of support here in New Hampshire as well. He has events in the state Thursday and Friday, Dana. Thanks, Eva. We'll talk a little bit more about the Christie dynamic there in a bit. I want to first go to Jeff Zeleny in Iowa, uh, where Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is crisscrossing the state today. Jeff. Dana, Governor DeSantis just finished the first of four stops he'll be making in Iowa today, trying to make the case to voters that they can change the dynamic of this Republican presidential campaign. And he was starting at a stop here in Waukee, in the critical Dallas County suburbs of Des Moines making the case to voters here, visiting once again that uh, he should be the Trump alternative. But there was a very interesting exchange from one voter who says that he does not believe Governor DeSantis has been strong enough, tough enough against Donald Trump. DeSantis had this to say. I don't think Donald Trump ultimately can win an election. There are just going to be so many voters that are activated to come out and vote against him that it's not even related to policy, it's related to other things. And we've seen it on the ballot how many times now, 2018, 2020, 21, 22, most recently in 23, um, and the whole election will end up being a referendum on his behavior. So even though the race for second place is front and center right now between DeSantis and Nikki Haley, there is still uh, an electability argument also overlaid on top of that. Talking to many voters, they do have questions about the former president. Uh, what is his uh, legal circumstance going to be uh, should he become the nominee? So talking to many voters, there are still undecided voters trying to decide between Haley, DeSantis, perhaps even Vivek Ramaswamy. So these final 12 days are very critical in terms of people finally tuning into this race in the new year. But Eva was talking about the $24 million that Nikki Haley raised. Dana, you can see the fruits of that labor mm. uh, on television ads here. So she is ending something in a remarkable way, uh, really, with more money than Ron DeSantis. He has very much trimmed down his campaign ads almost to nothing. So that has certainly been a crescendo from Haley, really uh, matching a decrescendo uh, from a DeSantis mm. here in the final uh, days of this race that few people would have predicted a year ago. Yeah, I was just thinking you know? the same thing. I mean, think about how much money Ron DeSantis had at the beginning of his race. Before I let right. you go, we have to talk about the man who is still far and away the front runner uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire. But let's just stick with uh, with Iowa right now where you are. Former President Donald Trump has a new message today for his base. Jeff. Uh, look, he is looking to uh, get his uh, supporters out. I mean, one concern that uh, the Trump advisors have had um, for several weeks is complacency. So his, his message to the base is, look, you have to come out and vote. This is where we can close down the campaign rather than begin it. This is where we can close it down. And Dana, one thing that is remarkable, uh, certainly different from eight years ago when he was running for the first time, the Trump campaign has an organized ground game underway. They know what the uh, caucus organization is. And what that is is organizing a series of meetings across the state at the same time on Monday night, January 15th. So his message is he needs their votes, complacency, 
is their biggest worry. Dana. Oh, it sure is. Thank you so much for that, Jeff. Appreciate it. Let's talk to our panel with our excellent reporters here, CNN's David Chalian, Jackie Kucinich of The Daily Beast, and CNN's Priscilla Alvarez. Thank you so much, one and all, for being here. Uh, so let's just start with what we're seeing today, David Chalian. You heard our reporters, Eva and Jeff, on the trail. Uh, what do you sort of give us a David Chalian 30,000-foot view of the snapshot of the race at this point. It's just so odd to me that we are in this place, what are we now, uh, 12 days to go to the Iowa caucuses, and the bulk of our conversation is about a race for second place. Mm -hmm. And I keep wondering to myself, well, what do you get in a nomination race if you come in second? You get nothing, right? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day. So it's it's just an odd configuration given uh, what we believe is Donald Trump's ultimate dominance here. And so, A, I think we are eager to get voters to weigh in here to sort of confirm whether he is that dominant or not. But B, I do think what Jeff was just talking about uh, the diminished money for DeSantis and the increase in advertising for Haley and the uh, momentum that we've been seeing, I do wonder how much margins will matter here at the end of the day, because mm -hmm. if Ron DeSantis uh, ends up coming a lot closer to Donald Trump in Iowa than people expect right now, you could imagine that being fuel for some donors to get back in the game for him and keep him mm -hmm. alive a little bit longer. And so I think we're now in a, in a waiting game to see what these margins are uh, more than anything else. Yeah, I, I think that's right, David. And But usually, I mean, I feel like in years past, there you've seen being able to see the rise right of someone particularly mm -hmm. in Iowa you're starting to you yep. start to feel momentum even when you're there you're just not seeing that in the same way that we've seen in years past now Donald Trump kind of broke the mold with how these contests go so you know perhaps that's happening again in another way because you know these both New Hampshire and Iowa do uh, love surprises um, however personally 30 points it's a lot I, before yeah. you, uh, I have to correct something. You work for the Boston Globe. I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. So but I was in the way back years, machine but... in my head. <laughs> and now we're back to 20. I'm like, am I younger now? <laughs> <laughs> we all are. That's how it works. Perfect. Go ahead, Priscilla. Yeah, I was just going to say that the Biden campaign is looking at it the same way. I mean, they had a call with reporters just last night. And the entirety of the call was about Donald Trump going after him and mm -hmm. the threat that he poses to American democracy. It wasn't until they were asked about the other candidates in the Republican race that they went on to say, well, it's too little too late for them. They've embraced Trump's policies, rhetoric, message anyway, so it's all the same. So looking at it from the Biden campaign lens, this is still just the run for second place. They are all in the same bucket, even if we're hearing them on the campaign trail, try to create some sort of distinction. And you still have in New Hampshire, Chris Christie um, pounding away at the notion that nobody in this race is gonna get anywhere close to Donald Trump unless you hit Donald Trump harder and more directly, not around the margins, but on the issue that he says matters the most, which is the question of democracy. Uh, he has a new ad, uh, both on TV and on radio on these issues. Let's listen. I think they're going to send a real message to Donald Trump on January 23rd, and they can't do it by voting for Trump sycophants like Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Vivek Ramaswamy. Everybody in my party who was offering themselves to be president of the United States were acting like it was going to fix itself. Don't mention his name. Don't criticize him. Don't do anything. I can't stand by and silently acquiesce to that. 
I should say that was a Christie's super PAC. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, his super PAC is clearly uh, aligned though, with the candidate's message day in and day out on the show. It is interesting because you hear Haley and DeSantis um, when they do amp up their contrast with Trump, but it's on things like the debt during mm -hmm. his tenure Policy. as president. Yep. It's or even DeSantis was doing it on electability, mm -hmm. but it's not on this notion of his legal peril and his potential threat to American democracy. I, I shouldn't even say potential. I mean, potential because if he gets elected, Donald Trump, we should just he has promised part of his pledge is to govern in undemocratic ways, is to use the government to go after political enemies. That's not conjecture. That's that's Donald Trump's promise to voters. And, you know, Chris Christie, I interviewed him in New Jersey. And now I guess it was a, a couple of years ago. And he said he still thought Donald Trump was a better president again than Joe Biden. Now he he's put out a, a press release echoing what he said on television that he's not going to vote for Donald Trump if Donald Trump is the nominee, which is way further than anybody else has gone. But Jackie, what I want to... It also breaks the pledge that he made oh, uh, in terms but, of support to get on the debate because, stage with the RNC. Because now they're over. Exactly. <laughs> That's a really good point. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Um, the, one of the things that has been um, fascinating to me has been the sort of Chris versus Chris. Right. Uh, and, and Chris Sununu and Chris Christie, who genuinely are friends, were friends, hopefully for their sake. They will be after this is all, all said and done, no matter how it ends. But Chris Christie was clearly not happy that Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, was backing uh, Nikki Haley, said uh, on Sunday with me that effectively that Chris Christie should get out of the race. Let's listen to what both of those men said on television this morning. Chris Sununu, as you'll recall, was one of the most vocal Donald Trump critics in this country. The shame of this is that Chris has now abandoned his principles in order to try to, you know, get himself some political favor inside of his own state. A lot of folks are understanding Chris has an opportunity to be kind of the hero here, um, not just bow out gracefully, but help consolidate this race, help do the right thing, help deliver Trump that loss in New Hampshire that we all know is very possible. And if you want a friend in politics, get a dog. Uh, but uh, but no, I think, I mean, it's also, what Sunu is talking about is that, you know, Haley really does seem to have some momentum in New Hampshire. Now, does the math work if Christie does drop out for Haley? I don't know that it does. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, all of his supporters would have to go for Haley, which is a hypothetical. However, I mean, I'm sure if you're Chris Sununu, that couldn't hurt. And Christie, based on that Super PAC ad, doesn't seem to be going anywhere. But he, he does have a decision to make. He also has some money to spend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he does have some money to spend as a Super PAC. I don't know if it's going to spend, he has enough to spend all the way to the convention right. as he promised to stay in. Yeah. Uh, before uh, we leave this conversation, there's something that really uh, was striking just before we came on the air. Nikki Haley went on Fox, which she does quite frequently. And she went on with uh, Harris Faulkner, who is an African-American host, conservative host. And uh, Harris really uh, pushed her again on the whole slavery thing that happened last week, effectively saying, I know you've been asked about it, but you haven't been asked about it by me. And it got kind of contentious. Let's l listen to part of it. But Harris, really, the media is the only one that has talked about this issue. No, that's I, actually not, one not person true. On a re-ask, what would you have me say about slavery was your answer. Clearly, you have plenty to say about slavery. 150 town halls I've done, Harris. And so one question, I should have said slavery. I didn't do it. I immediately, the very next day, came out and said I was wrong. I'll do that. We're moving on. Now, this is a platform of conservative media, which is a 
uh, a place that Nikki Haley goes a lot. So does Ron DeSantis and, frankly, most of the other uh, Republican candidates. But I do find it interesting that that this was a week old story and she wanted to to bring it up and she wanted to bring it up for a reason. And that she's still doing cleanup. I mean, the. I mean, this is the big question is whether these slip ups and we talked about this last week, too, because in the grand scheme of things, what kind of rhetoric have we talked about when it comes to the former president versus what we're hearing from Haley on slavery? It does matter. And I think that was the question going into this week is, is that just a new cycle that ended and that she could sort of move on as we head into the primaries? And clearly the answer is no. And there's also room there because, again, this came up, too, in that call with campaign officials last night with the Biden campaign is them using this type of example to note that she is not far from the former president, even if their rhetoric is different, mm -hmm. one more extreme than the other, what, however you want to describe it, there is still just enough alignment there for them to put everyone together and unite the Republicans in just that one category that can't define the Civil War for what it was. Okay, everybody stand by. Up next, disorder at the border. The new House Speaker is taking dozens of Republicans there today to highlight the unprecedented number of illegal crossings. We're live on the ground in Texas after a quick break. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Few issues have bedeviled the Biden administration like immigration and the unprecedented number of migrants crossing illegally from Mexico. Today, House Speaker Mike Johnson and more than 60 House Republicans are at the southern border to try to draw attention to the issue. CNN's Ed Lavendera is in Eagle Pass, Texas, waiting for uh, the members of Congress to come there. What are you hearing about what to expect? Well, this contingency of Republican House lawmakers will be here in, in several hours. They're expected to get a tour of the area here along the Rio Grande from uh, the head of the Texas Department of Public Safety. As we've uh, documented over the course of the last year and a half or so, uh, Texas state officials very much uh, in, in a fight with uh, the Biden administration over how to best handle the migration crisis here along the U.S. southern border. And what these lawmakers are going to find is just the extent to which the infrastructure here 
here along the river has been built up over the last year. Several miles of razor wire, steel shipping containers trying to block access to uh, the, the Texas side of the border here. But despite all of that and the thousands of federal, state and law, local law officers that are also in the area, this area has still seen some of the largest numbers of illegal crossings over the last year. And in the last month, in December, record levels of illegal crossings uh, all along the U.S. southern border, more than 225,000 uh, illegal crossings. That is a number we have not seen in 20 years. But the situation has also changed rather dramatically in the last few days, especially after Christmas, with several high-level members of the, of the Biden administration traveled to Mexico and met with the Mexican president. Uh, we have seen uh, kind of a, a downturn in the number of people crossing here in the Eagle Pass area. Anecdotally, uh, we spoke with the head of a migrant shelter on the other side of the river, Dana, who said that in the last few days, uh, checkpoints that Mexican uh, immigration officials use to uh, control the, the, the movement of migrants on the Mexican side has become much more robust in recent days. And they thought that perhaps that had something to do with the number of migrants being able to reach the, the Texas side of the border. But Everybody here in Eagle Pass that we've spoken with say they're also expecting that uh, migration flows ebb and flow and, and that they expect in, in the coming weeks the number of people crossing here illegally could change dramatically as, as well. But uh, right now, the, those lawmakers expected to spend several hours on the ground here in Eagle Pass. Uh, and we'll be hearing from a lot of those lawmakers who clearly uh, want to continue to put uh, more and more pressure on the Biden administration when it comes to immigration reform. Yeah, no question about it. And the problem uh, for the Biden administration is that the migrant pattern, they've been, it's been flowing much more than ebbing recently. Uh, that is, that's the challenge. Ed, thank you so much for that reporting. I really appreciate it. Our reporters yeah. are back with us. And Priscilla, you talk to Biden officials all day long, every day. They are very well aware of how big of a problem, first and foremost, just the substance of what we're talking about. And let's just set the table. You heard Ed talk about December. We don't have the official numbers yet, but it looks like uh, they are the highest uh, on record, the number of migrants right. coming from the Mexican border. Just in perspective, let's look at what we've seen in the past. 2014, we thought it was pretty high then, not even 500,000. 2019, not even a million. 2023, 2.6 million. Here's what the Biden administration is up against. Mm -hmm. Record migration across the Western Hemisphere. They're right on that point. After the coronavirus pandemic, many thousands of people started moving north because they, their economies had downturned after the pandemic. But having covered this for a while, but also since the beginning of the Biden administration, they never were able to quite dig out of the unaccompanied children surge of 2021. Mm -hmm. The president came in with this big, ambitious immigration agenda and boom, right away, we saw a surge at the border and they had to scramble to respond to it. After those few months, they never were able to quite seize the message on the border anymore. And instead, there were sort of these constant surges that kept coming up and kept putting them in this rapid response mode. Mm -hmm. And they haven't really been able to come out of that time. And so in all of that, Republicans have been able to seize on it. Texas Governor Greg Abbott decided to send migrants to Democratic-led cities. And frankly, it kind of worked because mm -hmm. all of those cities are slamming the White House and it has started to almost change. And I'm curious to hear David's thoughts on this. 
the Democratic Party's position on immigration. This is not the same party that it was in 2021 when it comes to this yeah. issue. They have started to move in a more moderate direction. And, and I want you to jump in on that, but I want our viewers to get a sense of what you already know, which is how hurtful this is politically to the Biden administration. If you just look at his approval on several issues, uh, immigration, I mean, a, barely a quarter of people responding said that they approve of him on immigration. It's consistently at the bottom of his issue set. Uh, and it has been uh, since nearly the beginning of the administra administration, as Priscilla was saying. I mean, I totally agree with you about Abbott. I think it's one of pure politics here are going to move the humanity of this issue to the side for just one moment. But like one of the most politically savvy things uh, in quite some time to apply new kinds of political pressure to a Democratic president, having these Democratic mayors and these Democratic cities mm -hmm. be part of that pressure effort. That's a that's a new dynamic in in the equation. And the you say uh, the Biden administration hasn't been able to dig out of this. Part of that is because the Democratic Party is really split on these issues yes, in yeah. many ways. So right. there, you have sort of a activist base inside the party uh, that is uh, adamant, not wanting to see what they would consider harmful changes to this process. And you have many in the party, perhaps more aligned with Biden, of what some kind of compromise action that he would like to get done on this to try and improve some of those border security numbers. And and that conflict within the Democratic Party uh, for an issue that unifies Republicans as a political equation, you could see why Republicans are doing what they're doing but today. But that's also in the aftermath of the former president, because Donald Trump's policies were viewed as so extreme and so controversial that Democrats started moving in the same direction. We absolutely can't do that. It was no longer Obama's Democratic Party on immigration. And then the President Biden comes in and this is like the issue that he is and, grappling and with. And Republicans are trying to uh, hold the Homeland Security Secretary accountable to the point where they are gonna, it uh, looks like they're gonna move uh, to impeach him. Let's listen to what uh, the Homeland Secretary Mayorkas said on CNN about that this morning. We have taken actions already to build lawful pathways, to deliver consequences and do what we can. We've promulgated regulations to do what we can within the confines of the law. But fundamentally, the law is the laws themselves must change. And this is something about which everyone agrees. It's not me. It's the laws. Everyone's fighting, like pointing the finger yeah, at Congress. But, but, <laughs> But he's not wrong. He's Congress not. has been stuck on this issue of fundamental reform for almost two decades. And even the efforts that are currently underway now, I mean, none of this is happening in a vacuum. You have you know, Senate senators um, from Democrats and Republicans that are trying to get to a place um, where they can agree on the border. But then you have the House who say that their hardline immigration policies are their hill to die on. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really look like this is going that far that, that far now, even when it seems like they're kind of moving stuff around, it looks like progress is being made. But I wanted to make one other point about um, the Biden coalition. The members that are the, or the, the people that are most worried about Biden going too far to um, make compromises on the border are the same, some of the same people who are not happy with his climate policies, mm -hmm. who are you know, not happy with um, student loans. So these are this, these are, this is a, a coalition that is, it's very, in, in an election year, very tenuous. Um, 
you mentioned the, you were sort of alluding to the fact that there are very active negotiations going on yes. uh, right now on Capitol Hill, not just about border security, but about trying to uh, change some of the policies. And Democrats are definitely playing ball with that. It divides Democrats, but as you alluded to, Jackie, some Republicans are not thrilled about, about GOP leaders negotiating with Democrats. Listen to Jim Jordan. Well, we need the legislation we passed several months ago. That would fix the problem. But if they're not going to do that, then just do one sentence, one sentence change. That sentence is real simple. No money can be used to process or release into the country any new migrants. The question is, do Republicans have the will to fight for that one simple sentence which says we're going to fix this problem? Clearly from his hotel room in San Antonio <laughs> before he goes to the I mean, border. The divide that we see there, I think, is less a divide among Republicans broadly in the country mm. and more of a divide between Senate Republicans and House Republicans. That's fair. And I, and I think that's a different kind of divide uh, than we see broadly in the Republican electorate. And I will say, having reported on this and talking to sources, there have been major concessions on this point that that coalition that the president is worried about mm -hmm. does not like. But Republicans won't are still not on board with it yeah. so it sort of leaves it at a stalemate and i will also note that the what they're fighting for and the the getting the deal to a supplemental includes money for the border yeah so not getting a deal also means not getting money for the border yeah cut off your nose despite your face that does happen every once in a while in congress <laughs> this afternoon on the lead republican house speaker mike johnson joins jake tapper for a live interview from the border you can watch it right here on cnn live at 4 p.m eastern and with the calendar officially flipped to 2024, the Biden campaign is tweaking its message for the year ahead. How the president is planning to tackle a possible Trump rematch next. President Biden will use a revolutionary war battlefield for his first campaign event of the election year. The setting, Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. The date he will give this speech, January 6th. So you can probably guess what the topic will be. CNN White House correspondent Arlette Sines joins us now. Arlette, uh, what are you hearing from your sources about how he's crafting this first big speech of the campaign year? Well, Dan, it's no surprise President Biden is opening his 2024 campaign push with a focus on democracy, as that has been a key focus and animating issue for him in his reelection bid. And President Biden will use this speech on January 6th, the three years since that insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, to uh, really sharpen his argument in warning that former President Donald Trump poses a direct threat to democracy. Now, this speech is really setting up one of the first real political uh, campaign split screens between Biden and Trump uh, of this year. President Biden will deliver these remarks near Valley Forge in Pennsylvania. It is there, a, re a revolutionary war a site where uh, George Washington commanded uh, his troops, where President Biden will try to make this contrast argument. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump will be hitting the campaign trail in Iowa as he is working to try to secure the GOP nomination. But Biden campaign officials have been quite eager to really ramp up their pressure and contrast with the former president at a time when some polls have shown uh, Biden trailing his predecessor in hypothetical head-to-head matchups. But campaign officials are, are telling voters that they believe they need to look at what former President Donald Trump did in office and take him at his word. And that is a message the campaign plans to stress throughout the next year. Reporting, appreciate it. And joining me now, joining me now is Biden campaign head 
at the Biden campaign headquarters, rather, in Wilmington, Delaware, is Senator Chris Coons, who serves as the co-chair of the Biden-Harris campaign. Thanks so much for joining me, Senator. Uh, let's start with what Arlette was just talking about, the strategy of the Biden campaign looking forward. I'm going to simplify it. Less about Joe Biden, more about Donald Trump. Good idea? Well, Joe Biden's got a very strong record of accomplishments to run on. And he and many of us who are campaign surrogates are going to continue to remind the American people of just how much he's gotten accomplished over the last three years, how strongly we've come out of the pandemic and the economic challenges that that created. But it's also important to remind the American people how much chaos there was during the Trump presidency, what his leadership was like, and how January 6th, three years ago, uh, was the culmination of that, in which the former president literally mobilized a mob to go attack the American Capitol. It is worth focusing on the ways in which former President Trump is clearly signaling that if he were reelected, he would continue and extend and expand the Senator chaos we all experienced during his four years as president. Senator, I want to ask you about uh, a report from my colleague Isaac Dovier about the plans inside the Biden campaign going forward. And in, in that report, he learned that uh, one of your Democratic colleagues in the House, Steve Horsford, he went to the White House, met with uh, Biden officials and urged them to move off using the term Bidenomics, saying that it's a phrase centered too much on the president and not appealing to voters enough. Do you agree? How is that message, which is, was so prominent uh, sort of in the back half of 2023, how's that going? Well, Dana, let's focus on what's happening on the ground. Um, the good news is that there's been an all-time high in our Dow Jones in the stock market. There's a steady reduction in inflation. Prices are coming down both for insulin, um, the major manufacturers of insulin this month begin a $35 a month price cap. But your average American isn't feeling it. Mm. They're still paying too much at the grocery store. They're still paying too much for rent or for housing. And so we have our work cut out for us in connecting with average American families who, although they hear the news about how much has been accomplished or they hear us talk about, you know, an all time high stock market, they're just not feeling it. So to the extent I'll agree with the congressman, um, we need to sharpen that message and deliver it in a more effective way. But I am convinced that over the coming year, our economic circumstances will slowly, gradually, broadly get better for working people, for families of all kinds across our country. I noticed you did not use the term Bidenomics. Was that intentional or you just skipped over it? <laughs> I'm, I'm perfectly happy to talk about Bidenomics. <laughs> um, I was just choosing, instead of focusing on the term, to Got talk it. about what's actually happening on the ground in the United States. Got it. I, I want to turn to something that is before you in the United States Senate when you uh, come back to town, and that is aid for Israel. Uh, it's tied up with border security and other issues. Your colleague just on Israel, Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, released a new statement this week urging Congress not to pass any additional aid for Israel while the Netanyahu government is conducting the war in Gaza. Now, even you've said that Benjamin Netanyahu is an exceptionally difficult partner. Do you think it's time for new leadership in Israel? Look, Dana, I hesitate to call on a close ally uh, that is a democracy uh, to engage in a change in their elected leadership. But 
as you just cited, I have repeatedly commented on how Prime Minister Netanyahu is pulling in a different direction uh, than our president and than many uh, in our capital, both Republican and Democrat, who for a long time have viewed a two-state solution where Palestinians have some hope, some prospect of self-governance as the only real path forward. Uh, every time that President Biden and the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, mm -hmm. National Security Advisor go to Israel, engage with the Netanyahu cabinet and with the prime minister, he often seems to then want to disagree or pull in an opposite direction. It is making our sustained close alliance and partnership more and more difficult. And Although, Dana, I will remind you, the Israelis just announced a significant troop withdrawal from yes. Gaza in recent days. Yes, and obviously, I totally understand Israel is a democracy and it is not the uh, practice of most American politicians to to get involved, particularly with a close ally. But the United States has leverage. And what Senator Sanders is saying is let's use the leverage we have, which is uh, the money and not give it to Israel as long as Netanyahu is the prime minister. Is that as would you be willing to go that far? No, I don't think conditioning our aid to Israel on a change in their elected leadership is something that I'm comfortable with. Mm -hmm. But continuing to send um, forceful messages, both publicly and privately, about critical policy matters, I think is an important way, uh, even with close allies, that we uh, deliver important messages. Two members of Netanyahu's cabinet, um, have Ben Gavir and Smotrich, two ministers, um, have recently made public remarks that suggest that removing the Palestinians from Gaza is part of their ultimate objective. And I may be mischaracterizing it, but in a quick review of recent comments and exchanges back and forth between the administration, that's something where because it is so sharply contrary um, to our policy positions as a country uh, in Congress, um, that uh, there was a sharp denunciation of those particular positions. Similarly, when there was settler violence in the West Bank, there was clear and sharp comments made both by the administration and that I support um, calling for an end to settler violence that was seeking to change the facts on the ground and to impose more and more uh, needless civilian deaths on Palestinians and to further inflame the conflict. President Biden is doing the right thing in trying to deter a broader regional fight and that's becoming harder and harder as developments in the region make it more difficult. We have deployed significant assets to intercept Houthi attacks, to prevent Hezbollah from further expanding, to prevent Iran from further expanding this mm. conflict. Well, but that becomes difficult if we have a partner who is pulling in different directions uh, than we are. Very diplomatic. Uh, Senator Chris Coons, I really appreciate you coming on. You mentioned Iran. Uh, we're going to talk out of the break about breaking news out of Iran. More than 100 are dead after two separate explosions struck near the grave of a Iranian military commander. Stay with us. Breaking news out of Iran. State media says more than 100 people were killed and nearly 200 injured in two blasts near the grave of Iranian military commander Qasem Soleimani, exactly four years after he was killed in a U.S. airstrike. Here's the moment one of the blasts hit a very crowded street. <laughs> Iran is calling this a terror attack, but as of now, no one has claimed responsibility. CNN's Nader Bashir is following developments 
uh, from Beirut. Nada, what are you hearing and what are you learning about this attack? Well, we are still getting more details from reports on the ground in Iran. We have seen in the last couple of hours that death toll steadily rising around state broadcasters saying that at least 103 people have been killed. 188 said to have been injured. Many of them are said to be in a critical condition. Now, of course, there are uh, mounting concerns, as you mentioned, over what caused this explosion, the past motive behind it. The details now, according to state media, citing officials on the ground, is that there were two separate blasts around the burial site of military commander, Iranian military commander Qasem Soleimani, who was, of course, killed four years ago today in a U.S. strike on Baghdad International Airport, a strike that was ordered by then U.S. President Donald Trump. And today, what we saw uh, there is hundreds, perhaps even thousands of pilgrims gathering around this burial site, heading towards the burial site to pay their respects. Now, according to Iran's interior minister who spoke to the state broadcaster earlier this evening, uh, many were indeed killed in what was a first blast at around 3 p.m. local time. Uh, reports from state media suggested that this was a bomb placed in a suitcase that was detonated remotely as far as current assessments stand. Uh, that was about 700 meters away from Qasem Soleil Mani's burial site. A second blast then going off about 20 minutes later, just about a kilometer away from that burial site. And according to the interior minister, the majority of those killed so far were killed by that second blast as many were heading to the site of the explosion to provide help and assistance. Of course, we have seen that dramatic video now emerging, showing crowds running away from the street, emergency services responding, trying to provide support to those uh, injured who were transported to nearby uh, hospitals. As you mentioned, Donna, no claim of responsibility just yet, but authorities on the ground have characterized this as a terrorist attack. Authorities also declaring now tomorrow to be a national day of mourning. You know, somebody trying to uh, stir up even more chaos in a very, very unstable region. Thank you so much for that report. Appreciate it. Up next, we'll come back to the United States and look at the incredibly shrinking House Republican majority. It's about to get even smaller. House Republicans' already slim majority is about to shrink even more. Ohio Congressman Bill Johnson says he's resigning on January 21st, meaning he'll be around for the first crucial vote to keep the government open, but not the second. That leaves the House with 219 Republicans, 213 Democrats, and three vacancies, meaning Republicans can only afford to lose two votes on any party-line measure after January 21st. Now, Johnson's announcement follows former Speaker Kevin McCarthy's departure and the expulsion of George Santos. A special election to replace Santos is set for February 13th in New York. No word on when California will call an election to replace McCarthy. That's it for Inside Politics. Thank you so much for joining us today. CNN News Central starts after the break. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.